But I want to share something about myself this morning. Uh, thinking back this past week, I was thinking back about my, my childhood. And for some of you, you don't know that I have nine siblings. Five older siblings and four younger siblings. And so what that means, if you're kind of thinking about logistically, it means we didn't have very much money. <laughs> it, it meant that I had a lot of hand-me-downs. And but when I say a lot of hand-me-downs, basically like every wardrobe that I have up through the fifth grade was either worn or was worn by at least one of my four older brothers. And so I remember that I had this, uh, this ALF t-shirt. For some of you who know what ALF is, it was a popular sitcom show in the 80s. I had no idea what it was when I was wearing it. I thought it was cool. And so people would come at me and they would, they would talk to me and they'd either laugh at me or laugh with me but I don't really remember which one was which. Um, but this, the shirt had just tons of stains on it. And so I look at my kids my age, and I look at all of the things that I'm wearing, and I'm looking at what they're wearing, and one of the things that I was the most envious of was the light-up tennis shoes. I thought these were the coolest things ever. And so when I saw them, I was like, man, I want those. Uh, and so a fifth grader thought that, this was like, I was thinking in my head, once I get light-up shoes and maybe some money and a cool car and a really cool haircut, then, then I'll be successful. Now, that was my definition of success back in the fifth grade. And so I still have been trying to find and define what success or what happiness is, even into my adulthood. And the older I get, kind of the, the easier I find that it is to reject the material idea that success comes from having all of these different things. But I find it interesting that different people define happiness or success differently. Some say that if you want to be successful, if you want to be happy in your life, then you have to pursue the best career. You have to go to college, you have to study hard, you have to work, you have to follow your dreams of becoming a nurse, a teacher, and a doctor, a lawyer, whatever. The, uh, the idea is that if we follow our dreams, we follow our career paths, then we'll be successful. Once we make it to the top, once we achieve that, then we'll be happy. Others say, just follow your heart. Meaning whatever you want to do, if it brings pleasure to you, do it. If, it, if it's a good thing and you enjoy it, pursue that. If it feels bad, don't do that. And then you can just be as happy and successful as you want to be. Others still say, well, you have to pursue wealth. You have to accumulate money. You have to invest wisely. You have to buy all sorts of different properties. And then once you become a millionaire, once you have all of this money, then you'll be happy and you'll be successful in your life. In some ways, almost all of these definitions of happiness and success, they, they fall flat. And it's for one main reason, and that is that happiness is never attained. It's always fleeting. It's never within our grasp. It's never permanent. We may have glimpses of happiness, but there are never really moments or sustained long lengths of time where we are happy. And it almost seems that happiness is unattainable. And as we look back at some of how people define success, certainly these things are admirable to pursue, but not if we want to be successful, not if we want to be happy. This is why I think I 
why I find Christianity a little bit different. It tells us not to pursue status, clout, wealth, accomplishment. It calls us to, uh, to pursue something else. And we see that the Word of God compels us to, to pursue something very, very differently than what the world pursues. And so where the world would define success and what we accomplish, the Word of God says that we are not successful based on what we accomplish. It's based on something else. And this is why we are looking at the Psalms this summer, just as different people come in and, and speak to us this summer as Pastor Kevin is on sabbatical. It's a time in the midst of the busyness of our summer to slow down and amidst the traveling and the hustle and the bustle of life, it's important for us to stop and to contemplate and reflect on who God is and what he's doing in our world and in our life. As we think about the Psalms, the, all 150 of the Psalms collectively touch on every theological, every philosophical, and every cultural issue known to man. They are written from the heart to people, to us, as we learn to worship and experience God through our emotion, through what's happening through us, through all of these different things. And they are most relevant to us as they show us how to worship God and how to grow in our faith, but also how to deal with difficult situations in our life. As we're going to see today, Psalm 1 highlights only, or sorry, today we are in Psalm 1, and it was likely written by King David, though it's not known. But this psalm is intentionally placed first as it is serving as a preface or an introduction into the rest of the book. And as you understand Psalm 1, you will likely understand the rest of the psalms. It is going to deal with the constant theme of finding refuge, delighting in, trusting in, pursuing Christ. So, All of the psalms show us how to worship God. And so what we're going to see today in Psalm 1 specifically, that Psalm 1 highlights only two types of people. There are only two ways to live on earth, and that is you are either a person of the world or a person of the word. As Psalm 1 will tell us, if we are people of the word, then we are blessed. If we are people of the world, then we are cursed. So either we are living for God or we are rejecting him at every waking moment. So regardless of where you are today, this serves as an invitation to to diligently pursue the truths found in Scripture. So the first thing we see is in verse 1, and he says, Blessed is the man. We need to stop and ask a question. What does it mean to be blessed? Temper Longman, a biblical scholar, defines blessed as a state of happiness signifying neither material nor circumstantial blessings, but is rooted in a growing, dynamic relationship with God. So one of the implications of happiness is a state of being. Being blessed is a state of happiness. It's not fleeting. Unlike the happiness that our culture pursues, it's not contingent on our circumstances. It's not contingent on our material possessions. We could say that biblical happiness, the state of happiness, is a result of joy. 
Most importantly, this joy is rooted in a growing relationship with God, and it is the basis for the state of happiness, the state of joy, and it is the state of where we will find success and prosperity. So if we are not in a relationship with God, we will not be blessed according to Psalm 1. But how do we actually be blessed? The psalmist does something unique here. He, rather than define what blessed is, he's going to show us what a blessed person is and doesn't or isn't. What a blessed person does and doesn't do. He doesn't define it, but he shows us. He sets the blessed person apart from the ungodly person. And so the first thing that we see set up as the blessed person is set apart is that they are not distracted by ungodliness. Meaning that we are blessed because we completely because the blessed person completely avoids sin. Both on the external, meaning that which is from without, and the internal, that which is from our from within, our, our thoughts, our actions, our behaviors, our emotions. And what he's telling us is he's saying, blessed people have nothing, nothing to do with sin. They root it out of their lives constantly. But what he's going to do in this first verse is he's going to show us, he's going to show us what it is to be blessed through negatives. And I don't always find it helpful when people describe things, well, you know, this is not this. I find it more helpful when you say, this is this. But this is how the psalmist defines uh, blessedness, not through the positive, but through the negatives. And so he gives us three things that we don't do if we are truly blessed. And so the first thing that blessed people don't do, he says, blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked. It means that we simply recognize and reject ungodly counsel when we hear it and when we see it. Even if it comes from our own hearts and our own minds. We are so in tune with what the Word of God says that we know ungodly counsel as soon as we see it. And so the one way to think about ungodly counsel, but it can, it can vary, but oftentimes it appeals to our senses, it appeals to our emotions, it appeals to what is our circumstances, even what and how we think. And so the blessed person, according to Psalm 1, does not even consider ungodly counsel if it is not rooted in the truths of Scripture. And so as we even go further, worldly or ungodly wisdom is based on man's understanding, man's abilities, man's performances, logic, and it runs contrary to the Word of God, ultimately leading us to ungodliness and rebellion against God, either directly or indirectly. Whereas, godly wisdom is full of mercy and peace and leading to a life of constant submission to God and a life that is in peace with others. And so being people of the word, we are able to spot the differences between these two. and We can accept godly counsel while rejecting ungodly counsel. So the second thing that blessed people are not distracted by when it comes to sin is that we find it, it's, he says, nor stands in the way of sinners. 
It means that we don't do as the worldly people do. We don't live, we don't indulge, we don't partake as, the, as others are doing. We, don't, we live categorically different than the people of the world. And so we see that blessed people don't live like people of the world. And then the third thing the blessed people don't do is nor sits in the seat of scoffers. So the scoffer is, a, is someone who openly rejects and mocks God himself, despising his work, despising what he is doing. The scoffer thinks that God is powerless to do anything in our world, anything in our, in, 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 in our, in our culture. But these people are so secure in their sin and their wickedness that blessed people have nothing to do with them. They don't associate with them. They are not friends. They are, they are, they are they're opposed to one another. But as we look at all three of these negative things, we can sum them up in how, our, how we think and how we behave and who we belong to. This, you see that progression in that first verse. The blessed person and the, ungodly, and, and, and the ungodly person live vastly different from one another in, in how they think and how they behave and to whom they belong. As you think about all of this and processing and, and where you're at, as we process what a blessed person doesn't do, how often are you concerned if your life is full of mercy and peace towards others? Would your family and friends say that your life reflects people back to God and that they can see the love of Christ in you? They see something different in how you live and how you think. And then as you look at your closest friends, would their closest friends say that you point, or do your closest friends, are they people who point you back to God and his character? As you're processing these questions, this may indicate if you are a person of the world or a person of the word. But the psalmist doesn't stop there. He moves from the negative to the positive, and he shows us Again, what blessed people actually do. More specifically, where blessedness comes from. And we find the, sec- the second thing that sets blessed people apart, and that is blessed people are devoted to the word of God. You see, unlike the wicked, the blessed people have a high regard, a high value, a high love and esteem for the word of God. It comes with a deep love and appreciation. Just look what the psalmist says in verse 2. But his delight is in the law of the Lord. And you can put this down in the margins. The law of the Lord does not necessarily mean Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, and Numbers, and Deuteronomy. It means the whole canon of Scripture. So to delight in the law of the Lord is to see the, a deep love and appreciation for every book of the Bible from Genesis to Revelation. But we find two key words in this, in this verse, and I want you to underline the first one, and that is delight. Underline that in your Bible. And so this word carries this idea of taking pleasure or enjoyment in something. To delight in something is an emotional response of the heart, recognizing the beauty and value of someone or something. What comes to mind for me is excellent food, fine dining, 
You don't go to a fancy restaurant just to have all sorts of food and you can just scarf it all down. No, you go to a high-end restaurant to enjoy and delight in the experience. The portions are smaller and they're designed where you are able to integrate multiple senses from what you hear, from what you smell, from what you taste, and even what you feel. You are, there's, you're designed to take a delight in this as you slowly savor this fine food, as, you, as you're able to have your 10,000 taste buds engaged and taste the different flavors and, and how they are mixed together. It is designed to be a savoring experience as we delight in fine dining, but more so with the Word of God. We shouldn't approach the Word of God as something that we have to do, that we have to read because I want to be a good Christian and I have to read my Bible. Or I have to read my Bible because I want to be a better parent, a better spouse, a better employee, a better citizen. Like Approaching the Word of God is going to produce those things, but that's not why we approach Scripture. But what we find with this delight is that we are to spend time learning who God is, delighting in his word, delighting in his character, contemplating, um, savoring, understanding how, who God is and how I am. The Psalm 8 says that who am I, that the God of all creation knows me. But the word of God, as we delight in the word of God, then we, as we come and we savor and we slowly contemplate on what it is, and so we are contemplating being convinced of what Scripture is challenging us in. We delight in the Word of God because we value the beauty of who God is, what He has done. We don't, again, read the better life to be a better person, but we read it in light of who Jesus is and what He has done for us on the cross. We should be approaching the Word of God seeking to know who He is, what His heart is, how He thinks, how He feels, and how He moves in the world. We look at the Word of God, and this is how God has chosen to reveal Himself to us. And so the, God wants us to know Him. God wants us to have a relationship with Him. He wants us to worship Him, to obey Him. But what the psalmist is doing here, he is implying that to delight in the Word of God is that the Word of God is the highest delight that you have in all of your life. This is what he is charging and challenging us to go. He wants us to know the eternal God who loves us deeply. The second word that I want you to highlight in verse 2 is meditate. We see, and on his law, he meditates day and night. And so to meditate is to engage in reflection or contemplation, to ponder or focus our thoughts on the, the things of God. It means that we wrestle with the truths of Scripture. We understand not only what Scripture means, but how it applies to everyday life. The meditation aspect is the work that we bring to Scripture where we are to study, to know what the Word of God says. But see, the thing is, is we could also say that we could use the word study. We study God's Word. We know what its implications are for all of life. 
So the psalmist is encouraging us to do something every, he's encouraging us to meditate on the Word of God every night and every morning. At the start of the day, are you diving into God's Word and studying it and and meditating and pondering it and contemplating it and chewing and considering what it means? Or are you going and looking at Facebook or hopping on other things and reading articles for the day? The idea is that we are setting our minds on the Word of God first and then that is flowing into how we see the, the day how we look at our tasks. So contemplating the truths of Scripture through prayer, slowly reading the Word of God, preparing our hearts and our minds as we focus throughout the day. And then at night, how are you going to sleep? Are you listening to music? Or are you reading an article that just gets you riled up? The psalmist says, at night, meditate on the truths of God's, uh, on the truths of, of, of the Word of God at night. Meaning that before we're falling asleep, rather than going to videos, rather than going to articles, rather than doing any of things, that we are stopping and we are thanking God for the specific things that he's accomplished throughout the day. Interactions, God's grace, understanding that has come from his word throughout that day. We're meditating again on his word as we go to sleep. And the thing about meditating on the word of God is that it feeds our delight. So as we meditate on the truths of Scripture, we are able to delight in the Word of God, which leads us to then meditate on the Word of God even more. But to prove his point of where blessedness comes from, the psalmist shows how we become blessed through devoting devoting ourselves to the Word of God. In verse 3, he says, He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its seasons, and its leaf does not wither, and all that he does, he prospers. One thing that I love about the Psalms, it has this rich, vivid language about nature, metaphors about nature. Multiple of the Psalms have rich metaphors of nature, and, and I think in a large part it's because David is spending a lot of his time, who wrote most of the Psalms, outside as a shepherd. One of the things that I love about Psalm 1 is every time that I am hiking through Cowichi Canyon, I imagine that Psalm 1 was written in a similar, uh, similar area. As you think about Cowichi Canyon, it has rocky and hilly terrain that is steep, and then it has desert-like conditions. But as you look through this valley, there's this almost unending stream of water that, as far as you can see, uh, west and as far as you can see east as you get up high enough there's just this beautiful creek that has massive amounts of plants and trees and I imagine David sitting in somewhere somewhere similar in the hottest part of the day observing the healthy plant life along the creek bed observing how there's bountiful life abundant life around the stream and then there's barrenness everywhere else and I think I'm sure he was thinking about how the stream is unceasing in its flow and it is constantly renewing the trees and it is giving water to the thirsty creatures and this water has no end. And regardless of how hot these summers get or how cold these winters get, these trees don't have anything to worry about because there's abundant water that is constantly renewing it. 
And because of this constant flow of water, these trees, as David says, bear fruit in all seasons, or it bears fruit in its seasons. Its leaf doesn't wither. In all that he does, he prospers. This tree is planted firmly in this creek bed, and it has nothing to worry about, even in the midst of catastrophe, of drought. And this tree has everything that it needs. So even more for us, when we delight and we meditate, not only on the Word of God, but God Himself. Blessing only comes through abiding and resting and delighting in Christ. He is that water source that is feeding us. So as we look at all of the Psalms, delighting and meditating on the Word of God is the basic act of us to worship Christ. And it is the foundation on which all expressions of worship are to be based. As we do that, as we delight in Christ's character, we find prosperity, we find happiness, we find success to, to, and hope to face each day, each trial, each thing that is going on, that regardless of what is happening in our life, because we are planted and rooted in Christ, we have life abundance. Jesus says the th- same thing about the Word of God and the Gospel of John and how that points to him in verse 30, or 539. You study the Scriptures diligently because you think that in them you have eternal life. These are the very Scriptures that testify me. We see that all of the Bible, Genesis to Revelation, is pointing us to who Christ is, what he has done, what he has accomplished. And you know what Jesus says? He says, abide in me and I will make you rest. Abide in me, and I will make you fruitful. The constant call of all Scripture is that we delight in, we abide in, we rest in, we trust in Christ above all things. So delighting and meditating on the truths of Scripture should lead us to a deeper understanding and a deeper appreciation of who Christ is. He is a real person where that scripture all points to him as the restorer and the perfecter of our faith. Delighting in Christ doesn't mean that our problems just go away, but what it does mean is that he, that he will be the one to provide us strength and hope and mercy because he will be our strength, our hope, and our mercy. And we can face whatever we want that, that is in front of us. And this is how we are to be blessed. It's not anything that we do through our own accomplishments, but through resting and trusting and abiding in Christ, ultimately by delighting him, <clears throat> pursuing him, and submitting to him above all things. See, we don't make ourselves blessed. God is the one who makes us blessed through Christ. That is where we're going to find true happiness and true joy success and prosperity. But this is what the psalmist is wanting to teach us this morning. He says, be blessed and delighting in Christ. This is what all of the psalms are inviting us to do, to know Christ and to make him known. And it's quite frankly a common theme throughout all of the psalms to know who God is and to make him known to people by singing his praises, by singing his glory, by making him known to the people around us. And so through all psalms, we are called to find rest 
in Christ. We are to delight in Christ. We are to find purpose in Christ and nothing else. He is our reward. He is what we are longing for. As the Psalms constantly invite us to be blessed by delighting in Christ, yet the psalmist doesn't end there. He gives hope to us that when we delight in Christ, we are known by God. And so he's, again, we're not wanting to forget that the psalm is about two types of people. And so the psalmist reminds us as he comes back to show that there are only two possible outcomes for us on earth. Either we are people of the word or we are people of the world. Either we spend eternity with God and his people or we spend eternity separated from God because we are either worldly or worldly. We are either living in complete dependence to God's word and his character or we are living in complete rejection and rebellion of who God is. So the last thing that that the psalmist says sets the blessed people apart is that blessed people are known by God. Verse 4, the wicked are not so, but they are like the chaff that the wind drives away. The psalmist just gave a vivid illustration on how delighting and meditating in Christ and the word of God leads to a fruitful life that is unshaken by the events in our life and the events in our world. But now he is focusing on how the wicked people are not fruitful. If everything that was true that he said about the blessed person, they are stable, they are secure, they are sustained, they are prosperous, they are fruitful, the psalmist implies that is not true about the wicked. The chaff is the part of the wheat that is empty husks. It didn't bear any fruit. There's nothing inside. It's completely worthless. As the farmers separate the wheat from the chaff at harvest, they save only the wheat and they burn the chaff because it is worthless. The psalmist goes a step further in explaining the separation in verse 5. He says, Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the day of judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. This is the day that is coming. And so paralleling the first verse, we find that the wicked and the ungodly people are in constant rejection of God. And because of this, there's a day of judgment that is coming where they can't stand on their good works. They can't stand um, against God because because of this coming judgment. They stand condemned because of their own rejection and rebellion. Their own motives, their own thoughts, their own actions have condemned them before a just and holy God. Yet we find something profound in verse 6. He says, For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. You see that important word there? Knows. Pastor Jason Williams touched on that last week as, we, as he taught through Psalm 139, but this is an intimate knowledge that goes beyond, yes, I know where the righteous are, and yes, I know where the wicked are. It implies a deep love and consideration for us. You see, this knowledge directs us, it guides us, and it even blesses us. When we delight in Christ, we know that God knows us. We know that God is with us. We know that God is for us. And because of these things, the blessed person, blessed people have God's presence in their life. 
He is the one that gives us our state of being blessed. And this reality signifies God's great, overwhelming, unending, never-stopping, deep, costly love for us that nothing that we have to do to earn his love, but it only comes through a personal relationship with Christ. Do you see that invitation? You see how we are invited in to know who God is, in to know who Christ is. We are blessed not because of what we do, but because, of what, because God knows us, he cares for us, he delights in us, and he even guides us. We can only know God through delighting in Christ. So this knowledge that God knows our path, knows where we are, even in the midst of extreme difficulty, should give us hope because we know that God is with us and that God cares for us. We have confidence that his presence is all around us, that we have been hemmed in from the front and the back and on our sides, that we've been hemmed in by God's love for us. I love this psalm because this is an invitation to all, regardless of whether we are worldly people or worldly people. We are invited to stop living for ourselves, to pursue Christ and to become people of the word. I'm reminded of what Jesus said in Matthew 11 when he says, Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. For my heart is gentle and lowly. What an invitation. The psalm is inviting us to delight and to know who Christ is. So Christ is inviting all people to come to him, to know him, and to experience that abundant life that only comes through knowing him and through his word. If you're here this morning and you don't know who Jesus is, you want to have a relationship with him, I'd love to have a conversation with you and, and, and talk with you about what this faith is, what it isn't, and, and teach you and help you understand who God, who God is. You can fill out a connection card, you can fill, find me after the service, and we can, we can have a a conversation. But maybe some of you are here this morning and you find it hard to delight in Christ. There are so many things you find it difficult to be in the Word. Life and your circumstances are just too unbearable. There's too much pain and heartache in your life for you to pay attention to the Word of God and delight. You're like, that sounds great, but I just, I've got nothing. I want to invite you to quiet your soul, quiet your mind. Simply rest in these psalms, these psalms for the weary this week. These are just five of the many. Um, Psalm 23, Psalm 13, Psalm 88, Psalm 30, Psalm 63. If your heart is broken, if your heart is devastated by all of these things that are happening in your life, these psalms are written from a place of brokenness. And you know what the psalms say? The Lord is near the brokenhearted. And I want to invite you to slowly read and reread and contemplate and ponder and consider these psalms as these truths of who God is speaks to the broken heart. Make these psalms your daily prayers. If you don't know what to pray, if you don't know when to pray, man, just open up the psalms and just read the psalms as, as a prayer. 
If you're here making excuses and you say, I don't have time, I've got too much going on, I forgot to be in God's word today, maybe, maybe something else is going on in your heart. Maybe you are more like the people of the world than you may be comfortable with. And I know for myself, in seasons when I didn't want to be in the word, I didn't want to hear from God, I made up excuses that, oh, I'm just so busy. I've got so much going on. I'm so tired. I don't, I don't know how to do any of these things. I knew that I didn't want to read the word of God for two reasons. The first was because I had ongoing, unconfessed sin in my heart. I didn't want to be convicted. And the second reason was that I had ungodly opinions of, of my world, of my life. And I knew that I didn't want my worldview to be shaped, changed, or altered in any way. I didn't want my mind changed because my mind was already made up. Both of these are the same problem. That our pride, the pride of life, is preventing us from being in the Word of God. If you are coming up with excuses because of the pride of life, if that's you, I want to invite you to spend time this week reading and reflecting and repenting on these psalms of confession. Psalm 6, Psalm 32, Psalm 38, Psalm 51, and Psalm 130. Let these be the cries of your heart as you are confessing and repenting to God over your, over your pride. You know what? As you do that, He knows why you're not pursuing Him. He knows why you are not doing these things. But we're told throughout all scriptures that when we draw near to God, he will draw near to us. When we seek him, we will find him. And so I just want to encourage you to spend some time reflecting and pondering on these psalms and then have the promise that as you approach God in humility that you are going to experience God's grace and God's forgiveness in greater portions than you can ever imagine. And some of you are just in a really good place in your faith. You're like, this has been the best season of my faith. I love the Lord. I, I delight. I'm meditating on the truth of Scripture, and I'm, I'm experiencing that life abundant. Man, praise God. But just even for you, just continue to spend time praising Christ, praising God our Father, what he has accomplished through his character. So here are some psalms of praise to aid you in just declaring the goodness of God to yourself and to others. And this is Psalm 8, Psalm 34, Psalm 100, 103, and the 111. I encourage you just to make these psalms the songs of your heart where you are declaring the goodness and the glory of God to others. But as you think about how to move forward in life and you don't even know what that looks like, don't even know how things are going to happen, but we do know that delighting in Christ and resting in Him is the way for us to experience a successful life regardless of what our world looks like. And so Christ is more than enough for us. He is more to Him. He's our, he's our reward, he's our portion, he's our strength. And he wants to meet us where we are this morning. So be blessed by delighting in Christ. Will you pray with me?